I'm going to be reading from Mark chapter 8, verse 22 to 38. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home, saying, don't even go into the village. (laughs) Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it's great to be here with all you guys as we look at what will be the last passage from Mark that we look at for this series. We're going to take a bit of an intermission and jump back into the second half of Mark next year. Um, But... If you're joining us tonight for the first time, uh, we've been looking through the first eight chapters of the Gospel of Mark, uh, a gospel which is all about thinking about what does it mean for Jesus to be who he says he is. Uh, Who is Jesus? Well, Mark declares at the start that he is the Messiah, and then we see over the the following eight chapters, and it will continue a bit too after this, uh, what does it actually mean for Jesus to be that. And we find that lots of people come to very different conclusions and are often confused by it. And we're going to be thinking more about that today. Uh, Last week, with the feeding of the 4,000, we continued to see that people were coming out to see Jesus, but they, they still weren't quite getting it. They're still coming to him looking for earthly signs. And today we have one of the key passages for the Gospel of Mark one you've likely heard before, at least in part, uh, but it's going to leave us with a really important challenge as we consider who Jesus is and what it's really going to mean for us to follow him. How about I start by praying for us? Father, we thank you so much for your word, and we pray now that you would help us to uh, come to you in humility, that by your spirit you would work in our hearts, you would form us into the likeness of Christ, that you would help us to see him for who he really is uh, as we consider what it means for us to take up our cross and to follow him. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I think at different times in our lives, or maybe uh, throughout our lives, and then when they begin to fade, uh, we realize that often we take our senses for granted. 
Uh, I realized this when I was first leading in children's ministry, uh, and I had suggested that we organize a game. I, I, on Thursday nights, I led a, a junior kind of primary school age boys group, year three to five, uh, and so we kind of do rugged games with them uh, and run around and do silly things. And I had the idea that we do human pinata, uh, which is that we would wrap up a leader uh, in toilet paper, and then we put a load of kind of lollies inside it, and then we give the kids these kind of bats, and they'd go at it until they, um, yeah, until they got some of the lollies. Uh, what I didn't realize was that the leaders kind of tricked me, and I found myself being one of the two people that were being taped together uh, while, the, while the students were being given kind of blindfolds and these, these kind of rolled up newspaper bats that had been taped, but they'd been at that church for like 25 years, so they're really just like wood by this point. Um, but the moment that I realized I was in trouble was when, after I'd been restrained, when the other leaders then put a blindfold on me too. Uh, I couldn't see, didn't know what was going on, and it made it so much more scary. I realized how much just even being able to see the danger that was coming at me was actually a really helpful thing uh, than just being completely blind to it and not knowing when it's going to hit. Uh, I think I've also realized as the people around me in my life have slowly begun to lose their sight uh, and who have had to get glasses at different times, how much I might take it for granted. Uh, I don't know if you ever kind of well, maybe, maybe what, end of, what end of the experience you might be on, but maybe you tried to show one of your family members something on your phone, but they kind of have to stop you for a second while they get out their glasses to look at it beforehand. By that time, the moment's kind of already gone. Well, today, uh, we're going to be thinking about the fact that maybe some of us, or maybe all of us, are blind, and we just don't actually know it. Kicking off in verse 22. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. Uh, now, two weeks ago in the Gospel of Mark, we had a healing that emphasized the importance of hearing Jesus' message. And if you remember, there was a deaf man, and Jesus touches his ears quite intentionally. And today, we have a miracle that focuses on sight. And once again, there are a couple of questions that we need to raise in response to this passage. Uh, firstly, he takes the man outside the village, likely to once again reduce the number of people there, kind of get him in a little bit more of a kind of calm setting. Imagine he's blind, everyone's shouting around him, getting Jesus to heal him. Uh, and then he does something quite strange. He spits into his eyes and then touches them. Did Jesus have to touch the man? Well, no. We know by now that it's not really necessary for Jesus to touch people or to do anything particularly when he's healing them. So why does he do it? Well, I think that just like the deaf man, he's making it clear to a man who can't see him what he's doing. So he's showing a bit of emotional intelligence and empathy here. But also his actions are emphasizing the nature of the miracle. Sight. Seeing Jesus. Seeing who he is. That is the key to our passage today. But something strange happens here, and I wonder if you've noticed before, or, or maybe just read over it quickly and not paused and thought, the miracle, the healing, 
It doesn't work the first time. He can see, but it's fuzzy. People are like trees walking around. Is Jesus having an off day? Right? Do you not do his miracle stretches that morning before having a go? If Jesus is who he says he is, then he shouldn't really be having any off days with healing people. If he's done all that we've seen him do so far, if he is God himself, then why isn't he able to heal the man the first time? Right? Why does he have to roll up his sleeves and give it another go? Well, unless he's using it to explain something to us. Remember something we've been saying from the beginning of the series all the way back in July. The miracles are not the point. It's what the miracles show us that is important. What do they say about Jesus? What are they saying to us? Now, one of the big frustrations for Jesus in his ministry is people's constant desire for him to perform miracles for them. Right? Last week, we saw this in people still asking for signs. They're making the miracles the thing, not the miracle worker. Their excitement, it's misdirected. The Pharisees demanding a sign from Jesus reveals their ignorance as they constantly try to test Jesus. I wonder if at different times you've kind of felt the need to test God, um, those kind of silly moments maybe where we kind of say, oh God, like if you want me to do this, then you'll do this. So we kind of put a thing on him. Uh, I remember when uh, I first moved to Australia when I was 11, I remember uh, I've a couple of vivid memories about the first house that we lived in. The first one was finding a spider in there on day one, which as an English guy was not what I was up for. It was in my bedroom as well. And then one of the other things I remember is lying in my bed at night, one night, thinking, and just kind of saying, God, if you're real, like, knock that poster off the wall. Right? It seemed kind of silly, but we all kind of have certain things like this. Um, sometimes, I don't know, maybe you kind of ask, you just want to kind of get some guidance from God. So you ask a question, then you kind of flick open the Bible and pick a verse at random. Has anyone ever done that before? Right, you're a bunch of liars. It's fine. It's all good. Um, I once uh, was kind of in a, in a moment where I didn't really know what to do with my life, flicked open the Bible, kind of saying, God, what do you want me to do? Samuel, 1 Samuel 8, 25, bring me 100 Philistine foreskins. Uh, I decided that was not the best approach that we could take to reading the Bible and understanding God's meaning for us. We all do things like this. We just want that little bit more proof, don't we? That little bit more proof of the power of Jesus because it's high stakes, because Sunday at 4 p.m. isn't a super convenient time to set aside every week, because when the chips are down, we just want that little bit more reassurance, don't we? Maybe that extra sign will just make us that little bit more confident to talk to our workmates. Maybe just that little bit more proof, and I'll be able to give up a few things to follow Jesus. How many of our friends say that they will become Christians if they just see a miracle for themselves? Yet here we have hundreds of people in the Gospel of Mark constantly seeing miracles happen right in front of them, and they don't become followers of Jesus because they just don't get that it isn't the point. The blind man gives us an image into that mentality. It is the first healing. You can see a bit but not enough. And it also gives us an explanation into what happens next with Peter. Uh, in a TV show called How I Met Your Mother, they talk about 
glass-shattering moments, those kind of moments of realization that you have that are kind of game changers, might change the way that you think about the world or uh, the way that you kind of see different people. Um, someone's habits, maybe, that you didn't notice before, but then you've started noticing them, and they become the only thing that you can see in that person. Oh, I decided that weren't any examples of this in my life that I could say from the front of here and not upset someone. Um, but what about, um, I, had a, I had a realization moment during COVID. This is going to make me sound so naive and such a boy. Um, I thought that all the women in my life, whatever their age was, that the hair color that I saw was actually their hair color. And COVID revealed this to me um, because not everyone could get their hair dyed during that time, could they? I, I actually thought that my mid-70s nan was still black-haired. Uh, and there you go. So that's the type of guy with that level of intelligence that Justin hires around here. Uh, another one is, um, this can be a kind of weird thing, but when I found out that not everyone has an internal monologue. So if you do have an internal monologue in your head where you walk around narrating your thoughts all the time, not everyone has that. And if you walk around, I, I don't understand what this is like, but with absolutely nothing going on, some people are in their own heads all the time, like me. So just remember, if you think I'm annoying, I'm with me all the time. But when someone finally gets something, right, and it changes everything, and you think this is the big moment, this is gonna change how we view everything, but just not quite. I was a youth pastor for quite a while, uh, and one of the classic cases of this that would come up would be that a student would finally kind of say, okay, so the grace of God means that my sins are forgiven. I'd be like, yes, and they're like, so I can do whatever I want. No. Right, that moment where you're like, oh, okay, you nearly get it. We're nearly there. Well, we have this kind of glass-shattering moment right now in verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do you say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. What about you, he asked, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about this. Yes, right? This is a big moment in the gospel. Peter has identified who Jesus is, that he is the Messiah, the promised king, the one who has come to save them. This is the moment that the gospel of Mark's been waiting for, for one of the disciples to understand this, for Jesus to be revealed for the disciples to unite behind his identity. But as quickly as the moment arrives, it gets taken away, verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. It's a pretty awkward moment for Peter. Uh, it's led to the production of one of my favorite memes, when Jesus calls you Satan in front of the homies. It's a pretty awkward moment for him, as you can imagine. Peter, you were so close. But the second Jesus starts to talk about his mission, he tries to correct him. You see, Peter and the disciples, they're part of a tradition that's waiting for the Messiah. 
The waiting for the Messiah promised back in the Old Testament in 2 Samuel 7 to David, a king promised to him. And for them, they're expecting a human king who would liberate them from the Roman oppressors, establish a new Israel, a new kingdom. Peter's mind, just like those demanding more signs in the passage last week, is on the physical world, a human kingdom, physical blessings for them now, position, glory, victory. And being in his inner circle, they would have been expecting great positions in that new kingdom that overthrows the Romans. Peter's just missed the point. Jesus is not here to just establish a kingdom in the fertile crescent in Palestine. Jesus has come for victory over the world, over all evil. What a waste if he was just to take Jerusalem. This guy's demonstrated power and authority over demons, over sickness, over the elements. Peter is the blind man after the first healing. He sees Jesus, but he doesn't see Jesus yet. He's only part of the way there. He sees Jesus as the Messiah, but he hasn't understood what that means. Following Jesus is not going to result for glory for him on, in this world, much to his disappointment. It's going to mean leading a great, is not going to mean leading a great army to victory over the Romans. It's not going to mean riches, living the high life. And so Jesus follows this with a rebuke of Peter, with one of the hardest, follows this rebuke of Peter with one of the hardest yet most important pieces of teaching that we get in the Bible. Verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Now, people who are looking to inspire people to their cause normally aren't this upfront uh, with bad information. Normally when you're trying to get people to do stuff that isn't gonna be awesome, you kind of cover it over, maybe a bit of misdirection. Um, this used to happen quite often. Um, back when I, when I was in the military, uh, when there was a job that needed to be done, uh, often uh, a sergeant would walk into the room and say something like, does anyone here have a motorbike license? And like basically everyone who put up their hands had just nominated themselves for that job, uh, which was often doing something horrible, like cleaning the toilets. Um, or um, I found that dads do this a lot. Um, Can you come and help me in the back garden for a couple of minutes? Eight hours of standing at the bottom of a ladder later, and your entire life has been taken away from you. Whoever follows me will gain nothing for themselves right now and will probably die. How inspiring. In this section of the passage, Jesus gives an explanation of what following him looks like, gives a reason for it, and also a warning for those who do not consider this to be worth their effort and commitment. Whoever wants to be my disciple must first put aside themselves completely. They must deny what they want, what they think that they need. They must not have anything in this world that they would rather have than to be one of my followers. Then they must take up their cross. They must take up Jesus' way, his teaching, the truth. They must believe, trust, humble themselves, and then follow him. Be brave, walk in his ways, follow where he leads, which in a literal sense for them at the time is to their deaths, 
and in a figurative sense and longer term, for us uh, also means the kingdom. This is not a small thing that Jesus declares to his people. It is not something to be rashly grasped upon, not something to be done without thinking. I think it's fair to say this is a big thing that Jesus asks. But Jesus gives a reason for it, verse 35. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Whoever wants to take their chances with the world, with the stuff, with the security that comes from what they can see and use now, well, they will lose it all. For it is only by being willing to lose your life, that is to give your life to Christ, that you can be saved. And if you think that's a bad deal, where well, we've got th- verse 36. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? What actually matters? What good is all the money in the world? What good is all the satisfaction, fulfillment, security, happiness? If in exchange for it, you would forfeit real life, forfeit your soul, your future, your eternity. When we come back to Mark, we're going to see some people wrestle with this, but today we must. We must consider our choices, we must consider our souls. At what cost are you giving it away? What cost are you turning away from them? Following Jesus is free, but it also means following him, not paying lip service, not turning up on a Sunday and then doing whatever you want. It's making real choices when the rubber hits the road that demonstrate that he is your king. You cannot turn away from your savior on the cross, the crucified king, and then expect him to embrace you anyway. You cannot live your life degrading God, rejecting, ignoring, and then say, but of course he'd save me. I'm a good person. You cannot reject the relationship and then come looking for the salvation. It simply won't work. Verse 38, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Jesus gives an explicit warning. Reject him. That's fine. That's your choice. But do not expect open arms when the day of judgment comes. But friends, this is a passage of hope. That to cling to the world is to choose the losing team. Is to treat Jesus like a miracle worker, like a wish granter. And and honestly, there are preachers who will tell you that you can have both, that following Jesus will take away your problems, will bring you prosperity, will cure you, will bring you success, that you don't need to be sorry or repent or change. But it is clear in our passage today that that is not true. What Jesus says to us today is that following him, well, it looks like foolishness to the world, that it will often be hard that you will often miss out on what you want, that you'll suffer, be mocked like him. And on top of that, Christians will face all the same harshness of life, the sadness of loss and pain that anyone else faces. 
The point is not that it is easy, but that it is worth it. That Jesus is offering that if you put aside the temporary, that you gain the eternal. The grace of God is costly. What has cost God everything cannot be cheap for us. It costs Jesus his life, and for us, it costs us what we might want our lives to be now. But it is grace because it gives us the only life worth having. Bit of sneaky Bonhoeffer for you there. But it is the truth. So far, we have seen so many people in the Gospel of Mark nearly get it, like Peter. But he still cannot let go of his desire for worldly glory. And so Jesus calls him out harshly, not because he wants to be mean to Peter, but because he's scared for Peter's future, for his salvation. He's half blind. And so he's going towards what he thinks he can see, but he needs to see Jesus for who he is, the king who has come to rule over a kingdom, not just of the world he can see, but of a, but of a kingdom that has transformed all creation, where sickness and death and pain and loss and sadness are gone once and for all as sin and evil is cast out of the world and righteousness and joy reigns. That is what is on offer for those who take up their cross. I can't wait for the next half of Mark as we see more and more people engage with this, but first today, it doesn't matter whether you have been a Christian a long time, maybe you dabbled a bit as a teenager, or it's just not on your radar. I want you to consider this. Jesus' own words in verse 36. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Are you clinging to an idea of the world, of success, of security? And is it actually as good as Instagram would make you think it is? And even if it is good, or it feels good at the time, is it worth giving up eternity for? For most of us, our lives are pretty awesome, really, living in Sydney. But it's that extra bit that we reach for, isn't it? That we want so badly. But is it worth it? In Mark, we've seen that those who put aside themselves, those who come to Jesus in humility and trust, find themselves at the feet of a Savior who knows and loves them, who seeks to reach out and give them more than they think they even need, who breaks down the barriers that are there and brings new life to the lost who come home. Do not lose your soul. Everything is at stake. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you haven't just left us to it, to meet our own demise, but that you sent Jesus, the, mess, the Messiah, the Messianic King, the King for all eternity, over a kingdom that is where evil and pain and sadness and suffering have been cast away. We thank you for giving us this message, and I pray that we would see the joy that can come from turning to you from seeing the truth that lies in Jesus' words and the glory that is to come from the taking up of our cross.
But help us, Lord, to do this because it gets harder and harder every day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.